Hey folks, you're listening to Blamo. It's Jeremy Kirkland. How are y'all doing? We're back. It's 2024, everybody. Wadida. How do we feel? We feel good? Did everyone uh, have a good holiday? Get some good get some good stuff, get some good fits, get into some nice arguments, whatever it was that you did. I love it. You know, we, we all did our thing. Still getting our fits off. World keeps turning. That's just that's just how it is. Uh, is everyone back? Like, are you listening to this like you're back at work or you're back in the commute? Um, I got to say, you know, last week you kind of assumed a lot of people were back. People were not back. The bounce backs were, they were in full force, at least for me. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I had to read between the lines or something, but people were just gone. They were still on the, they were still on the trip. Um, speaking of trips, PT Womo is about to, about to kick off. Um, if you're out there, pour a little out for your boy. I am not, um, you know, if you really want to know, you can listen to some other pods, but, uh, you know, some family issues had to say goodbye to grandpa, you know, that that's, that's some rough stuff, but all good things, a lot of good things. Speaking of great things, and actually a little bit of a throwback, we have an amazing guest this week, Christopher Baston of Gant. Uh, you might've known him from Gant Rugger, but he, if you don't know, he was the designer that we, and when I say we, I mean anyone who was getting into clothes in the mid aughts or was, you know, on Tumblr, but he was the designer that we were all obsessed with. Um, he would, you know, Swedish designer, incredible, incredible guy, but he was all over our tumblers, all over our feeds, uh, Twitter feeds, you know, RIP Twitter, but like he was, he was just the guy and he was cool because he was a fun guy. You could hang out with him. He knew a gajillion times more about clothes than you did. He had great taste. I mean, I say this all in past tense. He still got it. He's still here because the truth is he's back again. He's actually been back for a while, but you know, it was, it was hard for him and I to pin each other down, but we did it. We had an amazing chat. Um, I really love what's happening at Gantt. So, so, so excited that he's back there. Uh, but we had a great chat. Chris and I chatted about what he's been up to the past few years. We talked about making clothes in America again. The Taylor Swift bump, which is a pretty wild story, by the way. Uh, music and his never-ending love for vintage. Let's go. It's Christopher Baston on Blamo. Here we go. How are things? Things are good. It's wrapping up before everybody leaves for Christmas holiday, which is going to be so nice. Uh, I think everybody really needs a little break now. It's been a very hectic year, uh, but it's also been good. Uh, my wife is super pregnant. She's due beginning February. So yeah, kid number four. Kid four? Yeah. Can't stop, won't stop. Wow. I know it's like... <laughs> It's it's bananas, but it's also like the like my oldest one is twenty two and she's moved away from home and oh, okay. uh, my other one is twenty so she's like she's very ready to not live with her father anymore and uh, sure and then Flora is five so she's like excited to get a sibling that she can blame for everything so mm-hmm. no it's it's exciting it's exciting how are you good i'm i'm great i mean i don't know i'm i'm always okay that's that's my superpower yeah even when things are awful i'm just like yeah you know we're gonna be okay yeah uh not that things are awful by the way no <laughs> they're, but, they're good yeah no i just spent the morning so i have a six-year-old now and a uh 18 month old okay and they just are crazy crazy nutcase kids i mean they're, they're the best but they're no yes. they're in that that part of their life where everything is destruction and do you have boys and, uh 
I have I have a uh, girl and a boy. My youngest is a boy. Oh, okay, and he's he's very much you know I never real like expected this, but he's like the stereotypical boy of like he likes trucks, he likes cars, and he likes to hit things. <laughs> And he likes to throw things. How and does that even like, happen? Because like, no, it's like I'm three daughters and, and now we're getting a son and I'm, I'm totally expecting him to be, you know, calm, kind of metrosexual, interested in fabrics, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I just know that it's going to be like, it's going to come out like this crazy dude who's going to be like, I'm going to be QB1. And it's like, and I yeah. don't, I don't know how to handle that, to be honest. I'm like, okay. Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, it's funny because. You know, I, I don't know. I think kids are into the stuff that you're into. And so he sees me, you know, even as like a baby, he sees me caring about like watches or whatever. And a lot of times when I'm trying to change his diaper in yeah. the morning, I, I'm just trying to find something to keep him busy. And usually right. my hand, right, is right in front of his head. Yeah. So there's a watch on it. So I'll take my watch off and just hand it to him to give him something to fidget with so I can finish, you know, changing him. Perfect. And all of a sudden he's into watches and he's just like, watch, watch, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> That's kind of cool. Rolex passion. Uh, well, I mean, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, this is your watch, you know? This and it's is- funny because I have a few friends that are like, you're such an idiot, man. You're like giving your kids Rolexes and stuff. Yeah. I'm like, well, they're not like walking around with these, but yeah, at the same time, yeah. Well, it's- they're not going to get anything else. <laughs> no, but it's also, no, exactly. That's what they get. But it's also great that from 18 months old, they equate, you know, watch equals vintage Rolly. <laughs> you know, this is true. This is true. But anyway, yeah, no, kids are great. It's fun. I'm I'm excited for you. Congratulations. Where do you, um, where do you guys live? We're now in St. Louis, Missouri. I'm smack dab in the middle of the United States. Wow. How long um, have you been there? Uh, I moved towards the end of the pandemic. Uh, and then I commute to New York once a month. Okay. So that's nice. Um, I've been doing that. Yeah, it's, it's good. I mean, you know, I've, I've said this before in, in some ways where like you kind of get the best of both worlds, like right here. I mean, I have like the life of living in the suburbs, which is nice. And I have, you know, all the the great advantages of great public schools. I got a big backyard. I can, you know, go for like walks in the woods. I can, you know, do all those things. And then by the time I'm annoyed with everything, it's about time for me to go back to New York. And then I'm there and I get the same thing into which, oh, it's great food. See your friends, good city. And then you're like, okay, this sucks. I need some space. I need to go like really sit down and work in an office. And and so it's, it just, you know, is this cycle that continues but um but that but um, are you are you from that area or yes yeah yeah yeah. so I moved yeah I mean the last time I lived here though I was 18 so even you know I said this too where it's like I've there's restaurants or bars that even now my head's like well wait can we get in and it's like oh yeah yeah I forgot yeah I'm over 21 now yeah (laughs) I'm almost 40 here we go exactly (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I'm from here so it's nice and then we have you know, my, my wife's parents and then, um, you know, my mom is here right? and then my dad's in a home now. So it's just kind of like, you know, you, you get to see everyone and, you know, and then it, it does make it easier when I have to go to New York all the time. It's right, like, oh, cool, you my get, mother-in-law you get comes some, and helps yeah, your out. Your wife gets some help with the kids and. Yeah. yeah. So cool. it's, it's good, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I do think I've had a much better and stronger appreciation and understanding for how the majority of America buys clothes and shops. Mm. Yeah, because New York is not America, that's for sure. No, I mean, I love New York and it's the America I want, but it's the here people don't really go into stores as much. They and the ones that they do, it's like an older client. They spend 100x the amount of money that me and my friends do on clothes because 
we either get discounts or you're super selective mm. and I'll get my pants from here, my shirt from here, my socks from here, my, you know, and these guys, they just go to one, they go to one place and they throw down and they just keep hammering that place forever. You know, like there are people that the best example is just like Under Armour, like everyone <laughs> in my neighborhood okay. yeah. just spends tons of money on Under Armour. And I think it's the wackest brand on the face of the earth. Sorry, Under Armour. And they're it's, like, uh, you're so yeah. gay with all your clothes, man. Yeah, it's it, well, it's funny because that that happened at one point where I, you know, I'll wear whatever I'm, you know, I'm going to the gym after this. So I'm like, you know, in a T-shirt and coat, but like I'll wear whatever I'm going to wear to pick up the kids, you know, and whatever I have on throughout the day. And sometimes it's like, you know, nice corduroys, top coat or something like that. And uh, on a handful of occasions, a few of the folks have been like, oh, like, is your wife or wait, partner? You know, like they put up like, oh, maybe... <laughs> Maybe, you know, and I'm like, no, no, no. Yeah, my wife. Yeah, she'll she'll be here later whatever. And you just kind of like, you know, move on. Oh, I mean, everyone yeah. here is obviously very respectful. But uh, yeah. the fact but still, that like, it's like I the don't fact have that a, you're wearing a, a coat kind of makes you <laughs> gay. I love it. It's it's hilarious. Yeah, there's there's a few a few things where it's like, well, I don't have a truck. I don't have an NRA sticker on my truck and I two have shoes that have leather soles. Oh, and so it do, does not compute. Yeah. How uh, are you supposed to survive in that when the Russian comes, man? Yeah. So cool. Amazing. I've never but been. Those it's guys. Like, but it's also like funny because yeah. as, as much as I've been to the States, it's like I've never really experienced America. It's it's so weird because I've spent all my time in the States in either New York or Los Angeles. And like they're both yeah. kind of, you know, just like cosmopolitan cities where, where it's like everybody keeps telling me, it's like, man, you got to, you know, you got to get get into you know, upstate, I've been upstate New York, but that's still like, it doesn't feel like I've experienced America in the sense that I would like. I'm actually going to go down to North Carolina, to Garland, uh, okay, which we will talk more about later. And I'm really looking forward to, you know, seeing something else and kind of experience like the heartland and all that stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, I would definitely recommend going to, I think Nashville is kind of the, the best of everything in the sense that Nashville is this you know, people have said it's up and coming for ages, yeah. but it's very much a strong metropolitan area that is supported by non-metropolitan industries. Um, you know, yes, there's the music scene there, but that's it's not what it was. And so there's all of these other things that have been kind of built around it. There, It's an extremely affluent area, uh, at least most of Nashville. It's also like totally reinventing itself because mm -hmm. you have the East Nashville, which is basically like the other side of the river. The food is great. And I think you get you get the this like perfect dichotomy of people who love and care about clothes and then also people who just buy clothes because they have to. Yeah. And they're right next to each other, yeah. you know, yeah. versus I, I feel like that that's not as common in some other cities, you know. But yeah, I, like if you go to Charleston, like Charleston's a good mm -hmm. spot, but Charleston's still predominantly, you know, super, super white, yeah. upscale, affluent area. But Nashville, I feel like has it all smashed together and it's great. Right. Yeah. Um, and so you get a really good understanding of Americans there. Yeah. Because uh, I, I was on my way to Austin like uh, years ago, because that must have been like during the Rugger era, I think, because uh, that was like so mm -hmm. happening at the time. And, you know, uh, but I never, <clears throat> never got the chance to go. But I, uh, yeah, I can't wait to get back into the States again. Well, let's let's jump into that. So the last I think most folks had like really, really heard from you a ton was the Gantt Rugger era. And this is when everyone was obsessed 
with kind of the hashtag menswear. You had the, we had the Team Americano thing and you took a bit of a break, right? Yeah, I think what happened is um, I had I had like the best time with Gant Rugger because it was basically mm-hmm. me and I don't know if you remember Fifi. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, so it's basically me and Fifi and like two two other guys working on it. We were very kind of self-sufficient. We didn't report to anyone. We had zero kind of, you know, uh, there were no meetings. Uh, it was just like, we just focused on doing like nice product and building nice stores. And, um, and then I got offered the, the job as creative director for like the whole mm-hmm. mother load. Um, and I actually said to my then CEO, I'm like, no way, man. It's like, I don't want that. Like all that, you know, staff responsibilities and being part of the management team. And I was just like, I wasn't interested. And then he, he, uh, showed, showed me my, my new pay slip. And I, you know, immediately like the whore I was, I just like sold out, um, because it was also, but it's also like, I think I was very, I was very humble and I was like scared out of my life to take on that kind of job because, you know, to me, Gant Rugger, everything was familiar. I was designing for people I knew. Um, mm. And I think I, I was very in tune with like the whole thing that was going on. While Gant, like Big Gant was such a different beast. So I think I was also very afraid of like, uh, like, will my like knowledge and like all the nerdiness, will that be suffice to, to run this whole, the big thing? And, but I also didn't really get a choice. So I'm like, I... I was appointed creative director and then took that on. And it was really good because I think it, it made me grow a lot as a um, leader, so to speak, because I, all of a sudden I had 10 people reporting to me. I had a massive design team. So I think I learned so much about like what the business is about, not only within that little, you know, cozy world of Gantt Rugger. Uh, mm-hmm. So it was, a, but it was a steep learning curve. And then basically what happened is, uh, the CEO that I'd been working with for a long time at Gantt, he left. We had a new management and they wanted to change things. And I just felt that it wasn't a good fit for me anymore. And also I'd been with the company for 11 years at that time. Mm. So I'm like, you know, this doesn't, this isn't fun anymore. And I just, I want to have fun mm. when I work. So um, I left Gantt. It wasn't any bad blood. It was more like, you know, this isn't going to work out. And, sure, uh, sure. and I was also looking forward to like spending, you know, maybe six months with my kids, you know, taking it easy for a bit because I'd been working since I was like 19. Um, so, f- and, and then I think two days after the press release went out that I was stepping down, I got a call from Eric and Jens, uh, who started up frame denim in Los Angeles. And they were like, awesome. We saw that you're leaving Gantt. So you want to come to LA? And I was like, oh God. But that was like too fun, too much fun to, to turn down. So I started commuting to LA, which was great and working with Eric and Jens, who are obviously these insanely talented, smart guys. Um, and, uh, kind of started working on their menswear ready to wear. Um, and I did that for like a year, I think. And then at the same time, I took on some other freelance stuff here in Sweden. And I did a season as a creative director for Lee, which like nobody knows, which is fun. Oh, yeah. So I did a season for, for Lee. Uh, and some of the, the other stuff that I was doing in Sweden were taking up a lot more time. Uh, and at the same time, I think, I think Eric and Jens were like, if you're going to do frame men's, 
we kind of want you to do it properly and, and kind of, you know, take your shit and move to LA. And uh, my, my older kids at that time were, were not old enough. Um, and I really didn't want to, you know, spend less time with them than I was already doing. So, and, mm. so I, and I couldn't like, you know, just leave everything behind and, and, and go to uh, LA. So I had to stop working with frame, uh, but it was, it was great. It was, uh, it was an amazing ex- experience working with, with Eric and, and Jens and that whole kind of machine of, you know, brand insight and so they're so talented so i consider myself lucky to work with them for a year and then i i got a job with uh nn07 uh danish menswear brand i think they're starting to get yeah, some, very some good, good traction in in the u.s over the past years so i did i I, be, I was their creative director for like a year and a half and did some various things um and then the new manager or like the new ceo that came to gantt um got canned. And, uh, then I got a phone call and I was also ready, you know, because I'd been commuting over the, you know, better part of like three, four years, first to LA, then to Copenhagen for NN07. And I was traveling a lot. Uh, my wife was pregnant. So I really wanted to get back kind of to Stockholm and, uh, Gant called and asked if I wanted to come back. Um, and I always felt that there was so much, uh, that I hadn't done at Gantt that I really wanted mm. to to try and kind of see if we could you know take the brand on a journey where I where I thought it could be so I was like super excited uh, and it was really weird to come back in a way and I was so nervous because I was away for like four years uh, right. and and what made me like so excited is that there was a lot of like new young people uh, who started over the years when I was gone uh, super talented design team product team. Um, a lot more insight. We were a much better company, I think, because we spent a lot of time on, you know, getting the business in order. Um, so when I came back to Gantt, it was also kind of under the premises. What I didn't want to do is go back into the role I had before where I spent, you know, 50% of my time, um, having, uh, you know, development reviews and have 10 people reporting to me. I, I said, right. like, I, I would love to come back, but then I want to focus on the stuff that I'm good at, which is kind of making beautiful clothes and conceptualizing and, and kind of caring about the brand and our, our story and all that stuff. Uh, so I actually started working, not only, I started working pretty much only with getting our um, kind of brand story back on its feet and kind of slowly taking Gantt back to where I think it should be as a brand, uh, getting mm-hmm. some soul back into it. Uh, I think we lost our soul a little bit, not just because I left, but I think we we started looking way too much at, we started looking at price before product, I think. Um, mm. And I think to a company like Gantt, product is, you know, one, two, and three, and then you can start looking at the price. Um and also our, our kind of story was kind of forgotten and we, we kind of, I think we forgot where we came from uh, a little bit. And then, so I started by actually spending like three months in our archives and just getting everything sorted and uh, kind of building from there. And then I started working on collaborations, which is something that Gantt hasn't done before. Uh, yeah. And... Because I think I think the first day was funny because the first that question I got when I came back was like, "Are we starting Gantt Rugger again?" I was like, "I don't know, but I don't think so." They were like, "Why?" It was great, right? But it's also like I I think when you've been with, at a company for so long as I had, I was here for eleven years and then come back and you know you had this yeah. great run with Gantt Rugger and um, it was it became almost like a little baby 
But I think that this is going to sound horrible, but I think that baby kind of a little bit died or, you know, got a, adopted to somewhere or, you know, it got sure. lost. It got yeah, lost. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Because they're, because yeah. when I left, they closed Gant Rugger down because I think without me, there wasn't much like Gant Rugger left, to be honest. But so I also felt that when, like, let's not do that again. Let's, let's instead try to create that kind of feeling and that, that sensibility about product. Let's try to incorporate that into the whole brand instead. So that's a little, I think a lot of my time that I spent here in in the past years since I came back has been to kind of get everybody on board on that journey to, to create a brand that becomes a little bit more personal, that actually, you know, cares about products and becomes mm. very nerdy about products uh, and who also becomes very nerdy about our brand's story since it's such a beautiful uh, story. Uh, and then, you know, at the same time, um, working on these like small collaborations, which were purely driven mm-hmm. by, you know, passion and, uh, had zero like commerciality behind them. It was just like, let's find like good fun projects that can add something, something to us, but where we also can get like really inspired by, you know, if it's an artist or if it's another brand or, you know, so it was, um, it was a very kind of free, I would say first two years when I came back. Uh, mm. and also we had, I mean, when I came back, there wasn't a creative director in place. So the design teams had been running, running it by themselves for, you know, a season or two and they were doing really good. Um, so I also didn't want to come, come in, you know, I'm back again. Like, you know, the sheriff is back in town. <laughs> it, it was right, more, right. <laughs> more of taking on the role of like facilitating what they were trying to do. And then maybe finding a way of like conceptualizing it and like, you know, being the narrator of the story that I think we we needed to start telling people. Um, so it's also been a very, I would say, effortless transition into the brand mm-hmm. that we want to be today. Um, yeah, no, it's uh, it, it's really good to be back, actually. I thought it would be trickier uh, to kind of, you know, the second album. Right, right, right. Wait, 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 wait a second. I got to get my bids in on the Bezel app, but more on that in, in a minute. I get all sorts of emails and questions from you all, which I love to read and respond. And one thing I constantly get and even read in the Blamo Slack is, what watch should I buy and where should I get it? It's a wild world out there with all sorts of websites and shops, but I go to Bezel. Bezel is the trusted marketplace for buying and selling your next luxury watch with expert in-house authentication on every purchase. First off, folks, it's getbezel.com. That's getbezel.com. But I use and recommend Bezel because it's the best of both worlds. You can go to the site and browse a marketplace of luxury watches, over 16,000 of them, by the way, which is a lot. And I know that Bezel is going to authenticate your purchase. Or you can create an account and get connected with your own private client advisor called the concierge. Because look, making a watch purchase can be confusing, especially when you don't know all the reference numbers. When was this made? Did they use ceramic then? Is it a triple lop, dingle top? You know, what the heck? I don't even know. But they do at Bezel, and they're here to help. Concierge, baby. Look, if looking for your watch to mark a special occasion, or maybe you're just doing research, right? They even have their own journal where you can learn all the ins and outs about Bezel and the brands and all the stuff that's happening right now. But back to my bids. Yes, Bezel now has auctions, and not just any auctions. They got Rolex, they got Cartier, they got Audemars Piguet, all the big dogs and more. So you can discover, bid, and know the Bezel team has got your back 
with verified in-house authentication. So visit getbezel.com on your smartphone or computer, Bezel, the trusted marketplace for buying or selling your next luxury watch. Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot because especially with clothing brands right now, and I think this is something you always did really, really well, um, is finding the, the story because like, and I don't say this to dunk on any clothing brands, but I don't think it's as difficult now to make decent, I'm air quoting, and like good quality clothes. But what I do feel is very, very difficult is to create an authentic story that connects with what you're trying to make. Because a lot of people can say, oh, I'm going to hit up this factory and we're going to make these shirts and they're going to cost, you know, they're going to cost a lot of money, but we're going to have to spend all this money to make up a story that isn't really true to sell this stuff. Because at least for, as my understanding as just an American, I'm always attracted to the story, the history, why something is special versus purchasing something in a utilitarian mindset of like, I need shirt, here is shirt, you know? And one of the things I've always felt you've been able to do really well, and especially with the history at Gantt, is there is a story Mm. and it's not fake and you don't have to make it up. It's all true. And it also taps into something that's a part of, you know, the classic American heritage. And so all you're doing is just magnifying that story and trying to maintain its integrity from it versus, well, let's make something up or you turn it into some sort of pitch where it's like, we wanted the best Oxford shirt and it didn't exist. So we made it. And you're like, what? No, 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 no. It's, it's here. This is it. Yale 1960s, you know, this, you know, all these things. So I think about that a lot and because it's something that I feel like also requires effort to, you know, to to guide it, yeah. but you don't want to, the, the more effort you, you make to control it, the more it looks fake. Yeah. And so you've always had this very good light touch in how you made and guided narratives and storytelling that always feels really pure. Yeah. I, thanks. I, I really appreciate that. And, and I think it's also, I think it also s- s- comes from the fact that I, I don't have a, a formal training. I didn't go to design school. Um, you know, so I kind of had to learn along the way how to make clothes rather than designing. And then, you know, after mm-hmm. a couple of years when it's all you do, you know, I still don't call myself a designer. Uh, I think I'm more of a, I don't know. It's also funny because it's all I do is, is design stuff. Uh, but it's, <laughs> you're like, I'm not a designer, but it's basically all I do. Okay. But it, no, but it's also, I think it's, it's so, it's so silly, but it's like, it's, it's a stigma that I have. Um, and I find it highly offensive if I'm in a room together with people who have like, you know, five years at Central St. Martin's and could, you know, they can draw a, sure. a, a shirt and show the, t- like Mark Jacobs, he can, he can take a pencil and in with five brush strokes, you can tell that it's, you know, that's a silk or, you know, that's a down puffer, yeah. okay. which is like, I want to be able to do that, but I can't. So I'm really good at Photoshop. But I think in, instead I had to... Uh, to use my passion for for writing, for instance, or or storytelling, and my my OCD when it comes to finding out everything there is to know about us as a brand, because that's my way of getting uh, inspired and and kind of trying to find a a new story to tell. Because it's also like, yes, we were we were born on Yale campus pretty much in 1949, but if we do shitty clothes like. You know, it's useless. It's like, yeah, great legacy, True. man, but it's like your clothes suck. So, and also in, <laughs> instead of, <clears throat> instead of like shoving that story down people's throat and like screaming all the time, you know, we're one of the 
original American sportswear brands. If you if you if you whispered that to people instead by not taking yourself so seriously all the time, I think that mm. it's much easier for people to accept it. Like I mean, what we did with Gant Rugger was like it was I can't believe that they let us do all these like weird things we did and you know, all these like different names we had on the clothes and like the the kind of hyper fake stories we did about like gangs in the sixties in New Haven, which like, and yeah, it, but it, it somehow it kind of trickled down into something that became very inclusive and fun and, uh, and, um, appealing. I think, I think, you know, I think the clothes are great. If the clothes are great and you tell a story and you actually get people to feel something when they see your campaigns or, your garments or something. That's the only thing you need to do. The only thing you need to do is to kind of like touch people a little bit, um, which mm-hmm. is hard. I mean, we're a, we're a billion dollar brand today. We're in 70 countries. So like a, a big part of my job is, is kind of to find that balance and like, how do we still keep behaving? Like I wouldn't say an underdog, but, but um, I like the fact that we're a lot smaller than, than Ralph and, and Tommy and, and these like massive, massive companies because it gives us, it also gives us room to be a little bit like, you know, the obnoxious little brother. Uh, well, I think you also have done a really good job in making yourself somewhat accessible. And I add somewhat because people can still connect with you as, because, you know, with the position that you have, people are connecting with the brand, but a lot of other people are connecting with you. And I think, you know, that makes, that creates like an empathetic relationship with, with the brand is where, not that like, if I feel that I'm buying Gant, I'm like, I'm supporting you and your family, I wish. but just like, <laughs> I have this connection with, I'm like, well, I know, you know, I'm familiar with Chris Baston and like, I'm, I'm familiar with, 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 you know, this part of his life, because I feel like Ralph Lauren always did is probably one of the best examples of that. But over time, Ralph is less and less and less accessible, even though he's still leaned on heavily as kind of the face and figurehead of the brand. You know, mm. it's quotes about Ralph and his his words are guiding this collection, but the brand is so big, he, you know, it's not like he does a ton of press. It's not like you see Ralph's Instagram. You don't see that Ralph has other things that he likes in his life, like looking at his watches or his cars or cooking or anything. Oh. And I think we're at this level in, you know, in the fashion world and even in consumerism where it's not enough to make a good product. It's not enough to have a good story. You also have to, to create additional access and entry points for your brand, for people to engage with you. And so, I mean, so many people have connected with you just over your culinary stuff and your love of cooking and your love of design and (laughs) how you've made your kitchen and how you've, you've done all these things. And there are things that you've willingly showed people. And so when you then connect to the rest of the world that you love, everything makes sense, you know? And I am curious, like, has that been something that's been extremely intentional or it was just like, oh, that was kind of a happy accident. No, I mean, as far as the, <laughs> as far as the cooking goes, I, I think, I mean, I don't have a, a big following, but I think the people who do follow me, I think 85% of those are following me because of my cooking. And most of the people, they don't have a clue that I'm working at Gantt as a creative director, which I think is also great. And it's very liberating. Um, but I yeah. think, I think it's the same thing when I was working with Gantt Rugger and it also became kind of our world. Cause I also think that mm-hmm. when we, when we started working on that and I, you know, me and Fifi were traveling the world together and, you know, we were so absorbed into this world. And so, so our lives became kind of a reflection of, or I think, you know, what we wanted to do was to ha- kind of have a Gantt Rugger life, you know, 
uh, great clothes, uh, hang out with fun people, drink pork slaps at the standard, uh, everything that was sure, cool back yeah. in 2010. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we were looking at uh, how Tom Brown kind of changed things and Band of Outsiders and all these like different things that had such a great impact on our lives, not just like our work, but it actually affected our lives because we basically spent every waking hour either at the office or traveling or we were in New York. Right. Um, and then I think, you know, why would I, why would I separate the two things? I'm, I'm, it's not like I want my work to, to be this kind of mushy part of my, all of my private life. But it's, if you're in it, like, at least I work that way. If you're in it, um, you might as well, you know, go all in. Um, and then I never made a distinction between what I, what I share with people during interviews or, uh, on, on Instagram or, uh, uh, it just becomes like, it becomes one, it became one. Um, and I think people appreciate that, um, yeah. to the point where it also, because what I don't want to happen and what I think a lot of brands they take a very big, big risk on, on hiring somebody and, you know, you make them the face of the brand to a very large extent. Um, so that's also something that, that I need to navigate because I don't want to get be, I don't, I don't want to put myself in the, in the position. I don't, don't think Gant wants that either, where a brand becomes very dependent on this one single person. Um, I don't think it's good mm. for the brand. I don't think it's good for, uh, the person who has that role because it, it makes you, you know, you get delusions of grandeur and, you know, you know, nobody's, everybody's replaceable. And I think that is something that's really important right. to keep in mind. However, I think in, in my role as creative director and what I think I bring to the brand is my, my passion, uh, for the brand itself. Um, and also the willingness to kind of share those stories. Cause it's also like a lot of brands, they kind of sit on all this knowledge and archives and stuff, and they kind of gatekeep it. Whereas I think it's like, just like be very democratic about it. Let's, let's just like get everything out there and, you know, show people what inspired the collections or, you know, bring our archives uh, to the public. And, and I think that makes us a little bit different from a lot of the competition as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the archive exhibition, which you're also wearing the hoodie of, like, I, I think that's a genius move. And it made me wonder, like, wait, why don't other brands, like, why hasn't L.L. Bean done this? Why hasn't, you know, because, you know, why hasn't Levi's done this? Because yeah. I, th I think we're also at this part now where the age of many people, like, you know, and whether it's Gen Z is getting older, but like people want to understand the history behind things. Mm. And, you know, because we're, we're so surrounded by things that are new and new stories and new and improved and this is better and the new iPhone and the new this. And I think sometimes there's like a bit of just like newness fatigue that sometimes you just want to go back and find out why something was special. And, you know, specifically on clothes where you have so many of these like younger kids, younger adults, whatever, they're growing up in an era of very fast fashion that they're not always able to understand, well, what inspired this? What the person that that on Instagram that told me to buy it inspired this? They're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> Who? Where is this story coming from? Yeah. What's behind that? Why was it designed around utility? And I think, you know, the exhibition stuff was just genius. I mean, I hope you do it over and over again, forever and ever. Yeah, um, it's also like it, I think it was from from a from a brand and from a storytelling perspective. I think it 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 turned out really good. It's like better than expected. Yeah, it was also from a pure egotistic 
point of view, it was also something that I wanted to do for the better part of like the past 15 years. So I think also like <laughs> when we started talking about like, how do we, how do we get our, you know, archive and story out there? I'm like, let's do, you know, what about like a little exhibition, like New York, yeah. Paris, and then, you know, um, and uh, so it also, it also was a really good excuse for me to kind of like just dig into everything and start, start doing the research again. And, and also in the process, I, I, again, with like, I, I know a lot about Gantt and our history and the archives and, I know pretty much every single shirt label in, you know, you probably have like three, 4,000 shirts now uh, in the archive. And I have like a personal relation to almost every one of them. But every time, <laughs> you know, you go through it and you start doing research on like this specialty store in Poughkeepsie in the 50s. And it, it right. just learns so much every time we do a new archive exhibition. So it's been highly beneficial for us as a brand as well, not only getting the story out there, but kind of adding stuff mm. and... Uh, so yeah, we're definitely going to do that again. We're doing, we're, we're doing, the next one is in Berlin, uh, in spring and mm -hmm. we're probably doing one in Copenhagen come fall. Uh, I know the, the Chinese market is, is really eager to get one done in, in Shanghai and Beijing. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, yeah. So, I mean, we could probably do one more in New York as well, because it was like, you know, it's not like, uh, there was a million people attending and it was a very short short amount of time as well so no but it's a great way yeah. to to kind of uh showcase the 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 history for sure yeah i mean you could do a book i mean geez <laughs> yeah that's uh we've spoken about that well yeah yeah <laughs> i mean it in my head like it's like it's something you, i just want to have as for reference i think it's interesting too because i i think a lot about this specifically on the watch world where you know when people get things and they want to keep them and they want to develop a relationship with them, you know, you kind of get a little bit obsessive. So you want to, you want to trace where it came from. You want to trace, you know, and I think about this a lot with watches and like archive papers. Like, why is it that people want archive papers of a watch, mm. especially when they have no desire or care to sell it? You just want to know the life it had before you. And when I think about clothes, a lot of times I'm like, you know, I kind of wish I had some form of like archive papers for clothes. Like, how could I date this? And a lot of these brands, they're not really transparent on unders, you know, because imagine if Brooks Brothers all of a sudden published an official guide mm. of here's how to date all of our stuff. Yeah. Here's what this label means. Here's why we did this. Here's why we did this. Mm. I mean, I think it would, it, you know, like I think about that all the time. Like, well, why? Why hasn't anyone done this? Mm. And, you know, like, does it ever make sense to have a brand officially do it? Or do you kind of take the Rolex route in which you're like, we're never going to acknowledge that stuff. You know, yeah. we'll, we'll, you know, we're going to say that it, it's true. We're going to say that it was a part of our life, but we're never going to basically give you all those tools because that's a, its own little fun market of people that get obsessed over trying to make that. Yeah. But I think also with, it's special with, with Rolex, especially since like in the past, I don't know. 10, 15 years, it just went from, you know, pretty expensive to fucking crazy. Um, yeah. It, no, I mean, it's, yeah, it's I, I sold, I, I had a few that I bought, like, I think I bought my first 20 years ago when it was like nothing. And then a co couple of other ones. And like two years ago, uh, you know, I was looking at the prices and I'm like, this is crazy. So I sold one of them and it paid for my entire kitchen, you know. And that's, <laughs> that's when it becomes like a little bit crazy. Um, and I think, but it probably just adds to the mystique. And since there's so like, since the value is, is so astronomical, the whole kind of myth mm -hmm. around it becomes 
becomes such a propellant for for them as a brand. It's like um, mm. you know, and all these like super wealthy experts who are actually extremely informed and kind of yeah. Like uh, I don't know if you follow this guy Rolex uh, Rolex Passion Report. And, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and I, I I still haven't figured out like who the dude is, but he he's been at it for a long time. He he's sitting on some of the most kind of unreal Grail Rolexes in the world, and he's just like jazzing around the world, going to parties and you know meeting up with you know other super rich people at these watch. <laughs> watch fairs and and having a wonderful life but then again he's he's also so informed and he's and he's sharing this wealth of information and at the same time rolex is just sitting there like this dark overlord and like we're not going to tell you anything i know so it's up to it's up to all these like um nerd communities to kind of do the research even though they're probably sitting on all that info they're just not sharing it yeah which in their case i guess works i don't know they haven't really done much from a brand perspective with their advertising or they're still endorsing the same, you know, sports stars and uh, athletes and, you know, golf yeah. players and like James Cameron and yeah. Deep it, Blue, like, whatever. Yeah, yeah, it's like they haven't <laughs> they have done zero in terms of brand journey, but then they just went from, you know, something trust fund kids got for graduation into this like massive, massive movement. Um, yeah. <laughs> Without doing anything, I don't I, know if they've been pulling the strings in 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 the back or. But I mean, when I don't I don't remember exactly, but Paul Newman's Daytona when it sold was it like four years ago at auction for was yeah, it what I think was it, was it like, like twelve was million? it twelve fifty yeah like tw- twelve or fourteen or something like that yeah um, which was yeah. just like a quantum leap and everybody was watching that that auction it was just like oh seventeen point eight million ah, fucking That's hell you know it's it's yeah. And then the the Tiffany Patek limited edition that was like that was a charity auction, but that also just went like completely ballistic and and it's weird because I remember because when it comes to Rolexes and uh, if we're let's uh, we're, let's allow ourselves to become a little bit nerdy, but like the John Player special, oh, the John Player special Daytona, has as far as I can remember, has been like my favorite watch of all time. Uh, and my grandmother yeah. used to have. Because first of all, there was a, a, a Swedish race car a Formula One driver, Ronnie Pettersson, who who died. Uh, he he drove the most awesome Formula One car. It was all blacked out and had John Player special on the side. So I grew up like worshiping him. And then I remember vividly, my grandmother had this beautiful black backlight um, can for cigarettes that was marked in gold with John Player special. And then Ooh. I think like the first time I know I started getting into vintage Rolexes when I was like 2000-ish, a couple of years before I joined Ghent. And there mm-hmm. was very little information, like internet was still kind of not new, but there wasn't like eBay was going and stuff like that. And then, so I, I came across this John Player special and, and at the time, I think it was, it would be roughly like $7,000, $8,000, I think. Oof, uh, wow. And it was in shitty condition, but it was, it was still like, uh, or maybe it was $10,000. And I remember like sitting there and like, wish could afford this. And today they're a million dollars. Um, oh yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's like Bitcoin. If I only knew. Yeah. yeah the, the hindsight bias is very real with watches. Yeah. You know? And, uh, no, but I think, and, and, and at the same time, you look like, you know, some of the most kind of heritage, you know, heavy brands out there like Levi's. 
And it feels like they're they're treating their archives. It, everything is kind of like locked in a bunker. In I think it's in San Francisco. And yeah, I get yeah. I get that it's very it's extremely old and it's extremely. I mean, some of it is very fragile, so it's a lot of like white gloves and you know um, controlled humidity and all that stuff. But it also takes away a little bit of the allure around it. That's why I love guys like Britt Ethan, uh, who's just like hammering all that stuff out on 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 the on his Instagram account and everybody in the Denim world feels like they're very generous about the information as well. Um but it's it's a tricky thing to to be a heritage brand and 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 how to treat it. Um yeah. Uh it's a it's a it's a fine balance, I think. Well because there's also examples of people that have tried to make something not precious precious and it really backfired. Yeah. And I'm not, you know, we can you know, I, there's watch brands I know that tried to do that. And and everyone's like, yeah, but no one cares. And in my head, I'm always like, why does no one care? What is it that, you know, and I think that's the interesting thing too, where it's like, it could be, cause I have a friend who works for a company and I'm like, yo, it'd be so amazing. Like I was telling you, if there's like some way to connect the dots about like the history to, to understand that, to date things, et cetera. And he was like, well, if you don't have to work for it, I don't think anyone's going to value it. And I was like, no, no, no. But I think there's something there. No, yeah. It's like if you make everything super easy and accessible, it, there, there's not much of a reward for the labor of the hunt. You know, there's still so many people where like the joy of the product is in the journey of getting it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 100%. <laughs> and learning about 100%. It. And it, I mean, it could be like, you know, yeah. the, the Swatch collab with Omega or, you know, it doesn't have to be super expensive, but I think it's always some, there's yeah. something about like, because so it's like, I mean, we, we've replicated a few of our shirts over the years and we did it all the time for Gant Rugger, but then we didn't tell anyone that it was like, this is from 1972 or whatever. Um, mm mm-hmm. But if you make like 10,000 of that shirt, there's nothing special about it. So I think it's also like creating those little beautiful pieces for for a crowd that really appreciates it. Then it becomes, um, I rem- we did like the first ever collab, I think Gant did, was when we did a shirt with Michael Williams, um, the ACL. Oh, yeah. Gant Rugger Madras yeah. shirt. And we made 73 pieces. You know, I haven't thought about that shirt in ages. And then somebody on, on Instagram kind of, they DM'd me and it's like, dude, have you seen this? And it was, it was on eBay for like, I don't know, 450 bucks or something. And that made me so Whoa. incredibly happy because I'm like, yeah, that was like, yeah. Um, and it's such, I mean, what, there's like 50 people in the world who even cares about that shirt. So, um, it's all you need. You only need one other person to make something else care about it. Yeah. (laughs) So, but it's something that we, um, we actually started looking into, uh, especially we're turning 75 years next year. Yeah. So we're, we're commemorating that by actually creating a very limited capsule collection of, of some grail pieces from the archive that we kind of reiterate, um, which has been like super fun because it's like you can get like really down and dirty and and dig into stuff. Um, oh, amazing! Yeah, so that's going to be fun to to kind of get out there. Is this where the garland comes in? This is where the garland comes in. I mean, that's been that's been a journey on its own. Um, I know I was up in New Haven a couple of times. Um, my last run with Gantz, um, visiting the old Gantz factories. There's one on the corner of James Street. I think it's 162 James Street in New Haven. Um, and -hmm. there's this, you know, laminate company there and like office supply storage. And, and they let us in and 
on the concrete pillars in that kind of closed down former factory, there's still like Gantt shirt maker stickers. There were like little remnants of, you know, our, our previous oh, wow. operations. So it was like a hundred percent goosebumps in there. And so I, I think at that time, I, I, I started feeling like we need to start doing shirts in the US again. Not only as like my, what I would have preferred, which we were actually looking into was, was doing what we refer to as like from dirt to shirt, where we would buy the cotton, uh, US grown Pima cotton, uh, organic, uh, find a spinner uh, who could translate into yarn, find the weaver, produce our own fabrics from basically from plant uh, into ready fabric and then find a manufacturer in the States. Wow. And so uh, I worked a lot with a guy called Brent Crossland, uh, who's amazing. He he sounds and looks exactly like Josh Brolin, by the way. Handsome fellow. Uh, he's like nice. he's like Mister <laughs> Mister Cotton in the U.S. Um, super cool. Um, we spent a lot of time and effort, and and we actually kind of pre-booked fifty thousand pounds of cotton and had like everything was kind of lined up. And then turns out there's no weavers in the U.S. producing 100% cotton shirting fabric anymore. No one. Oh. Um, so we were starting to kind of find a way around that and, and it just turned out to be too complicated and, and too, uh, it came now we just realized like we can't, we can't spend all this money and time on trying to realize this. We basically had to, you know, produce 50,000 shirts in the first run and it was just like, it didn't become wow. realistic. However, in this process, we, f- we found, uh, Garland manufacturing, Garland apparel down in North Carolina. Um, yeah. who, and it's also, it's like, it's, it's, it's such good karma because they produce, they opened up shop in 1954 and produced Brooks Brothers shirts until Brooks Brothers filed for chapter 11 a couple of years ago. Um, so when I got in touch with them the first time, cause we said, okay, you know, scrap the idea of making our own fabrics, but let's find a, a, a U.S. manufacturer who is who is really really good at doing button down shirts and and i spoke to the guy and i'm like hi my name is christopher i'm calling from gant he's like yeah i remember gant and uh uh, he was like yeah we've been doing brooks brothers for the better part of like 70 years so you know don't worry about it kid we can make your button down shirts uh but it's so cool to see you know when we got the first prototype in from the u.s I was literally like, I was running around the entire office with this, like the first time since 1979, we're making shirts in the US again, guys. They were like, that buck is nuts. Because, you know, <laughs> I've, I've been trying to do this for like 15 years to finally get a, and it's like, it's a perfect fucking shirt. It's, it's so good. Um, and it's made with, you know, it's dead stock fabrics. Uh, Brooks left a ton of fabric there, like all the other brands that they worked with over the years. They just like, everybody's just left a lot of stock. Um, oh, wow. So be able to get like a Gantt Oxford button down shirt produced in North Carolina using dead stock fabrics. Um, it was just, I had goosebumps for like an hour. I was, uh, it's insane. I pretty much threw When a, does this hit? This came out, the first batch was released this fall. Um, okay. And we did it, We instead of opening up Gantt Rugger again, we we created a line called Gantt 240 Mulberry Street. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, Where yeah, we yeah. just opened up our, our studio last year, uh, which is, is going to be a shop right now. You can't actually buy physically from that store because of, I don't know, you know, we didn't have an LLC left in the US and stuff like that. Um, so right now it's a showroom. We throw parties. Uh, you can still go in and check out the collections and, you know, try stuff on and buy it online and stuff like that. But so the, the made in the U.S. shirts are, they're kind of the foundation for that whole line. 
Uh, and uh, I mean, it's not cheap. It's really expensive uh, producing shirts in the U S today, but it's also, yeah. the, you know, um, I love the fact that you can actually go into a Gantt store today and, and buy a, a product that's made in the U S again. Well, and I feel like your customers are okay with it yeah. in terms of the, the price and stuff. It's not, you're not, you don't have people coming and trying to buy Gantt because they're like, I need a shirt for tonight and I don't care about it. You know, you have people that like, no, they, they want the story. They want to reacquaint themselves. They, or it, it already is somewhat nostalgic to them, you know, or even in some cases you have like people like me where it's like, oh man, yeah. Bass is back. Like, yeah. let's fucking do this, you know? So I think there's, there's stuff around there and I'm sure you also have a crazy bump from all the Taylor Swift stuff. Yeah, that's uh, that's a whole whole story in itself, which is it, it's weird because the the idea of opening up stores in the US was like my my CEO when I said like let's create this beautiful, very very limited production of of you know made in the US shirts and then you know build build on icons, build on like the varsity jacket, the the chino the ruggers, uh, the button down shirts and, and, you know, let's get a P code in there. Let's get a club laser in there. Basically, you know, just the icons and make them in fantastic silhouettes, the best fabrics, best manufacturing. Uh, he's like, that sounds really expensive. I'm like, yeah, but you know, we don't have to make money on this. It's just like, let's just get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And he's like, uh, and I mean, I spent, we spent a year and a half. It was like 18 months from our first conversation with, with Garland and Brent and the guys in the US until we basically had a proto. So we spent a lot of time on this and like, let's do this the right way. And then he said, like, please do not, like, don't open stores in the US. We're, we're not there yet. And, uh, you know, let's just stay the fuck away from it, basically. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, not a problem. And then... <laughs> Phil, Google Soho. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Lita. Um, and then Phil, uh, a really good friend of mine um, that's been in New York for like the past 20 years. He's been in hospitality, like his whole career. And uh, and um, uh, work, he, he was creative director at Soho Grand. He worked with Public. He, you know worked at Boom Boom Room and all these places. So his his superpower is like getting the right people to the right place. So mm-hmm. he he and um, his really good friends with, with Kristen Stewart. And I think that they were kind of discussing, you know, wouldn't it be amazing to to have this little space in New York, like this amazing bar that that isn't big, where nobody cares if you're an A-lister or if you're, you know, John Smith from Milwaukee. It's like just a little, almost like a members only bar. And, uh, and then he called me and said like, man, I'm going to open a bar with two of my buddies, uh, Leo and Justin, um, uh, Justin is running bar premi and Leo is, you know, the top dog at, uh, Bowery. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds amazing. Like, uh, see you there. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, yeah, but the thing is like, it's down in the basement, but we also have the, a little retail space on top of it. Like, wouldn't you like to, uh, open up a small shop. I'm like, oh. and it was literally like the week after my CEO told me like, don't, don't go there. Um, but so we started like discussing the idea and I, I pitched it to my, my CEO that, you know, the paparazzi images alone of people coming in and out of that bar. And if we just have a little Gantt sign in the window, that's going to pay the rent because, you know, free PR. And I spoke to Phil and I'm like, you know, if you get like people that you think are cool or, you know, if they're celebs or just like inspiring people, you know, you got the keys to the store, you know, take them up there, let them check out the collection. And then 
And I think, you know, I pitched exactly this scenario to my CEO and he was like, yeah, whatever, kid. It's like, okay, open the store and like, just like, let's see. And then uh, I'm on vacation with my wife. We're sleeping in and Phil is like FaceTiming me uh, like crazy. And I'm just like clicking him away because I'm sleeping. And uh, the third time I'm like, (laughs) I'm texting him. It's like, dude, I'm on vacation. It's seven o'clock in the morning in Sweden. Like, I'll talk to you later. Uh, <laughs> then I see my, I flip my phone over like an hour later and he's like, yeah, you're all good. It's just like Taylor said, you know, she just wanted to say hi and that she loves the stuff. I was like, oh, okay. So, um, so uh, yeah. She, what a power move. <laughs> yeah. Something to tell the grandkids. Uh, but, and it, and it's fun yeah. because it's also like, I think it's exactly the way we wanted that collection and that space to work is for people to kind of discover the brand. If they like it, great. If they don't, you know, that's fine too. Uh, but she, I think she really liked the stuff and, and. Um, Clearly. And uh, so she got a few pieces and, and uh, the funny thing is that we don't have a, a stock uh, in that store. We basically have um, one of each to just like, so people can try it on. And, and um, I think when Phil spoke to her, he's like, yeah, so I, they got to replenish all the stuff that, that I gave you uh, from Germany. Cause they don't apparently, she's like, oh shit, I'm so sorry. You know, I'll wear the shit out of it to make the, make it up to them. And, you know, j- j- that's, you know, so considerate, you know, her being you know, she could probably drown in, in, in stuff from other brands. And, and she's been so gracious to, to wear our stuff. Um, and it's just like, I think it's just like the, the best possible scenario of like organic stuff. You know, it's also like it, there's so much good karma in it that it happened the way it did. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that kind of blew up, uh, so yeah, I think everybody was like, whoa, dude, what's going on? What's happening? Well, I know because like I, I zoom out and I was, you know, my dumb analytical brain was like trying to figure out what was going on. And I think, you know, what you might have done <laughs> is made this like accidental case study of like how to create a new retail store in the sense that you you basically venture into whatever you're going to do from a hospitality angle first. Mm. Then you make clothes that you can't really buy. <laughs> And and you turn it into just a place to hang out. And all of a sudden you have like one of the most successful like relaunches and brand, you know, showings, period. I mean, it's it's I it's it's unbelievable. But I think it's it's so just so, so interesting how it all came together, especially because it wasn't 100 percent, you know, planned. There was like I think the only plan I think Phil and I had was like he's going to have a very cool bar downstairs. We're going to have a great little studio space and, and do some really cool clothes. And then, and I've known him for a very long time. And, you know, he, he, he said, like, you don't have to worry about us getting like the right clientele into the bar. That is, yeah. you know, we're yeah. good. I, and he was like, I think you're going to be super happy with having your little retail space because this is going to be the hottest ticket in town. Like everybody's going to try to get into our space. And he, like his self-confidence was like up here and, you know, knowing him, you know, I just knew like, this is, it's, it's going to happen. It's going to be exactly the way that he says. And we basically got that space just because that dude knows how to run a fucking fantastic uh, bar. So yeah, it's, I think it's a different way of looking at things, but it's also, and I'm, I'm, you know, I love my boss for, for just being like, yeah, you know, this sounds like, you know, might get legs. Um, (laughs) 
So, um, and it's fun because it's like, you know, Rita Ora was up there, same thing. She, he was like, yeah, you want to check out like my, my buddy works for, for a clothing brand. They're, they got some really cool shit. And she came up and she was like, oh, yeah. this, this is amazing. Yeah. It's like two days later, she's, well, out, and she's then, out running around town in a leather trench. And it's like. Well, and I think that's the other thing too, is like, which has never been a uh, difficult thing for you, but like making clothes that are actually good. I mean, cause that's. Because other people can do that. And then they're like, yeah, we have all these clothes up here. And you're like, yeah, but this is just monogram pajamas. And they that doesn't make any sense, you know, and that's not even calling out any brand. I'm just like trying to pull something out of the air. No, but I think it's like, no, you have good product. Yeah, we do. Uh, And I'm uh, I appreciate it. (laughs) It's it's also I think it's there's so many other brands out there doing fantastic fashion, um, Mm -hmm. which I think is, is super fun. It's super fun to watch the kind of dynamics of, you know, micro trends and macro trends and stuff being born. And, and, and I think the big difference today is that it happens so quickly. It's like, yeah, there's all of these like super quick fads that are, you know, they get blown up so fast on social media. So the hype is over before the garment is even out in the store. So instead of trying to, instead of trying to cater to this like mass history, fast thing is like, why don't we just make stuff that people really, really would love to wear? Like not just for a season, but, and, and I mean, working with, with, with our little realm of, of the fashion world with like varsity and preppy and, and kind of collegiate American Mm -hmm. sportswear. It's just like, it just boils down to very basic stuff. It's just like great fabrics, really good silhouettes and kind of, you know, playing with that. It it doesn't really take that much. I think it's also, and also like we don't, we don't have, if you look at Emily on door, for instance, they built this incredible cult following in a very, very short amount of time. And I, I think what they've done is unbelievable. But they also make like good, it's good stuff. It's like when you go into their stores, it's not weird. It's just they packaged it so, so very well. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, it took me a while to understand ALD and I'm a huge Aaron Levine fan already, obviously, but like, you know, it's, it's interesting because right in, in, when people think of clothing brands, there's usually two things that make them perfect, right? You have brand side, which is like storytelling, you know, vibe, ambience, energy, et cetera. And then product, right? The product itself has to stand up. And I think rarely do you have a creative director or someone in the design position that understands both of those perfectly. Mm. You know, there's a lot of brands I know where I'm like, yeah, it's run by a product guy. The, the products are great, but the brand doesn't make any sense, mm. you know, and brands like what you're doing with Gantt, like you've always been, you know, both sides of the brain, which you make good product, but you have the storytelling to back it up. You know, I think Aaron's good with that. Obviously, we, there's a much larger team. I'm not discounting other people that work there, you know, but then you have like uh, Noah is another good example of where it, you have a good product and then you have a good brand mm. storytelling behind it. But when you think of a lot of the other menswear stuff, there's not a ton. Because when you think of like high, high fashion, you like, yeah, there's a couple good products, but it's mostly just brand. And we're just assuming you're going to buy it because it's the new iteration mm. of that brand, mm. you know, and I think that stuff kind of bums me out a bit. But it's it's great that like you continue to, you know, 
walk both sides per se. Yeah, um, I think it's it's also like yeah. it's what makes the the job fun as well. Is because I mean, sure, you know, we're Gantt, so you know, if we're doing fall, we know that we're going to start out something. You know, we'll start with something that's a little bit more kind of varsity and collegiate driven, and then you know, go mm-hmm. into October, it's going to be a little bit more dressed up. So there's this formula to to what we do that isn't necessarily that doesn't necessarily have to change every season. It's it's more about finding novelty in in key pieces, but also like what's the story and yeah. And I think but looking at brands like um, our legacy, for instance, uh, mm-hmm. another uh, a Swedish brand, by the way, um, who has gotten yeah, Swedes Swedes make good clothes, yeah. Uh, but they <laughs> have very little legacy. I mean, they're what like ten years old, fifteen years old. Yeah. Uh, but they managed to carve this niche out between kind of good, kind of casual sportswear, because a lot of that, what they do is like kind of easy PC garments. And then they mm-hmm. added this layer, which they didn't do from the beginning, but they lately they've added this layer of like fucking super cool fashion pieces, like the printed denim and, yeah. you know, all this stuff, which, which is, I think it's a very hard thing to do without the brand starting to feel contrived or, you know, too fashiony. Cause I think that turns a lot of guys off, but I think our legacy has managed to walk that line and keep that balance in a very, very good way. Um, cause they come across as like, I think they're one of my favorite brands. Also Jochum and, and Christopher Nying and uh, the, the guy, they're super, super nice guys. But I also think that they've managed to, it feels very personal what they do. Mm. It's still, uh, the, the whole brand has a personality, um, which kind of shines through in everything they do. And I think that's, yeah. that's, that's what, what we try to do with Gantt as well is to kind of maintain that personality or, or make sure that we, that we come across as that brand who actually has a personality, um, and not just become this massive monster that churns out, you know, a gazillion pieces of clothes every year. So that's, that's the kind of, that's tightrope to walk, I think. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it also speaks to the fact too, that we're approaching this sort of era where collections aren't necessarily tied to specific seasons. And you can also make the same silhouettes and maybe slightly different fabrics mm-hmm. in this. Like, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. not like, okay, everything you just worked on last year, you have to throw out mm-hmm. the window. And start over completely from scratch. And you can't reference anything you just did. Or it's like, well, you're not building at all. You're just driving yourself crazy. Yeah. And I, I love that you get to, you know, leverage the things that you've been refining and the things that are part of the history. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I think it will, it's kind of exhausting when you look at, you know, the big houses that constantly because they're, you know, most of them, they, they, they make all their money from either it's handbags or it's beauty products. Uh, very few of them yep. actually make money on their ready to wear. Um, so they have to reinvent themselves with every show they do uh, and kind of also looking at uh, uh, some of the brands where, where the crea- uh, a creative director comes in and, and kind of becomes that brand for a couple of years, which I think is, it could be a, a huge upside to when Virgil came into Louis Vuitton, for instance, which was just like such a game changer because all of a sudden mm-hmm. that kind of fashion house with all that legacy and with all these iconic, um, talented, um, designers and creative directors, all of a sudden has this guy that just turns everything on its head. And, and yeah. which is, you know, obviously a formula that everybody else is trying to replicate with, you know, some being very successful at it, some 
not, but it also becomes, to me, it feels like a very volatile strategy because you have a brand that's in, you know, been around for hundred, sometimes 200 years, and you put it in this hand of, of a single person and their design team. And, you know, normally they take a lot of people with them from other companies, et cetera, et cetera. And they have their aesthetic yeah. kind of carved out. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of such massive decisions that these companies make because they're really putting a lot of eggs in the same basket. Uh, yeah. Like Gucci with Alessandro, which again, genius move, but also like very, very scary. Uh, Cause you, you know, he had a very, I think he had a very cool run with, with Gucci and, and what he did. Um, not so sure about where, where it's going. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't, that's the thing too. It's like my heart kind of breaks for some of that stuff. And then at least for myself, like I feel like I have aged out of that brand because for some people it's like, oh, your connection is with the designer. And when the designer is no longer there, you don't really have the relationship to the house as much mm. because you also feel like you're, you know, Eddie Slimane is probably one of the best examples. Mm. There's not people that are all like, you know, oh, I need all this Saint Laurent stuff, you know, because one, he's not really there anymore. And this stuff, you know, there's, there's every year, there's a little bit less of like his thumbprint mm. on it, even though obviously he's been Celine and stuff now. And I think there's, they're more loyal to the designer than to the brand, but the brand is what gave all the cash to the designer to design anyway, you know, and, and like I could just talk in circles over it. And I think it, it's such an interesting uh, conundrum yeah. for lack of a better term. We're just like, how, how is this, what is this going to look like? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's also like, a, I think, I mean, even though I have a very, I think I have a very big impact on 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 Gant at the moment and, and where, you know, the brand is going and all that stuff. But I, in a way, I do that for the sake of the brand um, and, and like not me. Mm-hmm. And I think I would have the same approach if I, if I like whatever brand I work for. Um, but it, but it's interesting how the creative director is, is now in, in many ways, the new assets and they're, yeah. they're betting enormous amounts of, of money on, on this one, you know, person and his entourage to, you know, drive multi, multi billion dollar, uh, business. So yeah, it's, it's a really, it's a really fun show to watch, uh, from the sides, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's also like, I'm, I'm like, oh my God, how, how is this going to play out? So it's very interesting. Yeah. It's, uh, such big business. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that being said, what's next for you and for this year? I mean, we're wrapping up uh, this year right now. I mean, but- we're, we're, we're in full on, we're selling right now. So, which is a great time of the year when all the, the collections for fall winter 24 is in the house and, you know, wholesale customers are coming in and, you know, shooting the shit with them. Uh, there's the 75 year capsule, uh, that we're taking to market next fall as well. Uh, we're doing some fun stuff with Gantt 240. We're finally going to be start op- opening the shop to physical retail in spring. So that's going to be fun. And, uh, yeah. And I think it's, it's also like for us right now, and it's also like everybody knows it's, it's a shit market out there. You know, economies is failing, interest rates are up, inflation is killing everybody. Uh, there's, there's conflicts everywhere that is affecting the whole thing. Um, so 2024 is, is going to be, uh, a steel bath, I think, um, for a lot of Mm. brands out there. Uh, 
And, you know, we're, we're lucky enough to be in the position where uh, 21, 22, and, and I think 23 as well is going to be uh, the best years in Gantt's history, uh, which is kind of fantastic given that we've been on this brand rejuvenation journey and just put the gas the pedal to the metal, so to speak, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess that's the receipt that we're doing something right. Uh, and everybody's like really, really excited on, on you know, where where we can where we can take the brand. And uh, yeah, no, it's uh, it's really exciting. So it's a good time to be yeah. at Gantt for sure. Uh, yeah, and good for you too. I mean, are you, are you, have you changed like how you approach job stuff now to maybe how you approach stuff earlier in terms of like, you know, it, it sounded like earlier when you took the break, the importance of just being around your kids and your family was pretty high on the list. I mean, how does that sit now? Yeah, I think, I think I, I finally, I mean, I, I turned 50 this summer. So I, I think I finally came to the point where when I need to, I can, I can take a, a step to the side and, and look at the work side of things and like, be very much, I can be a lot more chill about it. Uh, I don't get stressed mm-hmm. um, at all anymore. I, I'm I'm very kind of intense in what I put in, uh, but I don't really get stressed anymore because I, and I think that comes with uh, That's age. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's, no, but it's good also for, <laughs> for the health. Uh, and also, yeah, you know, become, sure. becoming a dad again and kind of looking at what's important in life. Uh, I also have a wife that 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 works a lot and and is is doing a, a fantastic career. Uh, and I want to enable her to to have that uh, opportunity as well. So she's killing it uh, and kind of just enjoying spending time with the kids. So uh yeah i think i'm finally starting to find that kind of work-life balance uh which actually makes me a lot better at at my at my job as well believe it or not right yeah no i mean i i do believe it i think when you start to at least for me when i when i realized that i was working more for my family and and for me the goal wasn't so much to have some item or some piece or some socioeconomic status it was to be present and provide security for my family it changed entirely how i work and approach things yeah. into which i've i've had to let my own personal ego uh die a slow wilting death which is pretty easy for someone like me with you know there wasn't a ton of ego to begin with but like i it's really changed how i look at work and approach work and just tried to be a little bit more selfless and humble yeah. because i you know my joy comes from goofballs you know running legos into the wall you know it's 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 not from how many likes on an Instagram post, even though that stuff still affects me. It's, I think about that a lot. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, the, yeah, I, I think if, if, if it was all about likes on Instagram, I, I, my Instagram wouldn't look the way it does for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you're cooking, you're doing all sorts. I, you made me want to get a, uh, a stove with a, what is it? A pasta, pasta water pot faucet or something? A pasta faucet? No, I wish, I wish I had that because it's like, one of the smartest things to come out of the U.S. is that kind of faucet that comes out like by the stove. Yeah. No, I wish I, no. When I, I should have. Oh, I thought you did. No. But you do have a banging stove. I have a banging cool stove, uh, which was paid for <laughs> by a vintage Rolly. Uh, yeah, I love my stove. Right. Are any watches in the future? Or are you kind of off that game for a while? Uh, I mean, I spend a, a, a unhealthy amount of time looking at vintage Rollies um, on Instagram. And I don't know what it means. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I might have evolved as a person over the years, but I, I'm still like, I'm such a sucker for those 
those grills. I, I, you know, if I had those creamy loom plots. Oh God! You know <laughs> that 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 Stella dial prototype, the Green Daytona. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could stare at that thing for hours, and it's but it's funny because it's like you think that you're past materialistic things, and then you know I see a perfect pair of like World War Two edition five hundred ones. You know, with the orchid stitch painted and the leather patch is still on there and i'm just like oh god if i had like fifteen thousand dollars over i would buy them in an instant (laughs) and then you you know you think to yourself it's like the only thing that's going to happen is like they're going to go up with the rest of the vintage denim collection that now sits up in the attic in plastic boxes and i take them out once a year and kind of unfold everything and like check out the washes and smell them and like oh man this is like this is the 1947 ladies Levi's with the pink selvage. And I'm like, yeah. And my wife is like, honey. Yeah. It's like, are you, are you looking at your denim collection again? I'm like, yeah, isn't it amazing? She's like, uh, <laughs> not really, but it's, uh, yeah. Can we eat dinner now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you start cooking? <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, so it's, it's the, so I think, uh, but I, I, I've learned also like realizing that having all, having access to all those like good things at, at, at your fingertips probably takes away the fun. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Joy's in the journey. Yeah. Joy's, I get in, you. joys in the journey. Well, Chris, thank you so, so much for chatting. Thanks for having me. It's been a, been an honor. Thank you. It was, it was good chatting. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to Blamo. Our show is produced by Blamo Media. We're edited by Amar Lowell and our theme music, as always, by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. If you like what you heard, you know the drill. Share the pod with a friend. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars or thumbs up on whatever other thing you're listening to us on, whether it's Dingledorp or Bing Bong, whatever it's called. But you can also follow us on Instagram for all the hot content. If you want to talk to us and give us your hot take, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email at info at Last but not least, super ultra important. If I had an air horn, I would press it right now. You got to come and join us over on Patreon because the fun never stops over there. Look, the, the, the live show, the, the, the free show, whatever you want to call this, we take breaks here and there. But Patreon, it never stops. And we also got exclusive shows like Die Workwear, hosted by Derek Guy and Peter Zatolo, and The Triple J Show, hosted by yours truly with uh, John Moy and Gene Delian. There's There's just a ton of stuff over there. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash blamo. If not, no worries. We got hundreds and hundreds of free episodes in the feed and uh, more to come. So we will see you all soon. Take care. Happy 2024.